Shalom and welcome to a journey of enlightenment, inspiration, and connection. You are listening to the Bear Sheva podcast, a beacon of light to the World Noahide community. I'm your host, Tani Burton, and I'm delighted to be your guide on this journey, broadcasting from the heart of the world, Jerusalem, the eternal city. Together, we'll dive deep into the wellsprings of Torah, unearthing timeless truths that resonate to the core of our existence. So get ready to enrich your life, expand your horizons, and embrace the boundless possibilities that lie within the vast expanse of Torah wisdom. This is the Bear Sheva Podcast. Today we will be exploring the 13 principles of faith formulated by Maimonides, who is known in Jewish circles by the acronym Rabbi Moshe ben Maimon or Rambam. These principles are the foundation of Jewish faith and they are widely accepted throughout the Jewish world. In this episode, we will focus on the first of these principles, which is the belief in the existence of God. We will examine the source text used by the Rambam in his commentary on the Mishnah and explore how this text relates to the future of the Jewish people. And I will explain why I'm doing that as we go along. We'll also discuss how the Rambam's teachings apply to Noahides, individuals who accept the seven mitzvot and their precise observance. Stay tuned to learn more about this exciting topic. The fact is that there have been several attempts to reduce the principles of the Jewish faith to a short list, but the Rambam's list is the one that has been accepted as authoritative by the vast majority of rabbinic decisors and the Jewish people. So let's talk about the first of the 13 principles, specifically what the Rambam describes as the foundation of foundations and the pillar of wisdom, which is the belief in the existence of God. Rambam's 13 principles appear in his commentary on the Mishnah, in the 10th chapter of Tractate Sanhedrin. So we have to examine the Mishnah that serves as Rambam's source for his commentary. We've seen the 13 principles of faith articulated in a list. Each line of this list begins with Animamin Be'emuna Shlema. I believe with perfect faith, and then insert faith precept here. We're going all the way back to the Mishnah to see the development of these ideas in his commentary. The Mishnah states, all of Israel has a share in the world to come. And the source text used in the Mishnah is a verse from Isaiah. Specifically, chapter 60, verse 21, which states, Your people are all righteous, meaning they're all tzaddikim. They will inherit the land for eternity. The shoot or sprout of my plantings, the work of my hands, by whom I am glorified. And this statement refers to the Jewish people who in the future will settle permanently in the land of Israel 
as opposed to going through the unfortunate cycles of settlement and exile that they've experienced throughout history. So far, we see that the Mishnah pairs up a group of people called All Israel with the verse's description of those who will permanently inherit the promised land, specifically the people who are all called tzaddikim, righteous people. But then the Mishnah takes a funny turn. It states, and these are the types of people who have no share in the world to come. And as we'll see, the second list includes people who fall somewhere on the spectrum of heretical beliefs. So the question that we can ask at this point is, do all Jews actually have a share in the world to come? What about Jews who are heretics, denied the existence of God, or do not believe in the concept of prophecy or the Torah? The people who are all righteous in Isaiah chapter 60, verse 21, are clearly people who are not apostates. But, of course, every group of people has its good and its bad actors. So how can the entire group be tzaddikim? Rashi, commenting on this verse, explains that in order to have a quantity of precious metal that is pure, it has to be extracted from the rock that contains it. And this is done through the process of smelting, where the composite rock containing the metal is, is heated to a point where the metal that you want melts and can be separated from the rock that's left behind. Rashi then references a much earlier verse in Isaiah chapter 4, verse 3, which states, And those who remain in Zion and are left in Jerusalem, all who are inscribed for life in Jerusalem shall be called holy. In other words, we are speaking of a remainder of the people. Previous chapters in Isaiah speak of the removal of the haughty and arrogant members of Israel, which are negative in nature. But this chapter is different. It refers positively to those people who are left. They are called holy. They are the tzaddikim spoken about in the prophecy. Now the analogy of extracting pure metals from rock that Rashi mentioned in his comment comes from the book of Zechariah chapter 13, verses 8 and 9. A rather dark forecast for the Jewish people is that two-thirds of those who live in the land of Israel will perish, and that the remaining third will be tested about their faith. The two-thirds that we're talking about are people who sin against God, especially false prophets. What's the problem with false prophecy? False prophets undermine people's faith in real prophecy. Right? When we speak about prophecy, and we're going to speak about it more in depth in, a, in one of the other principles of faith, if you can imagine for a second, where do you find real truth? What can you trust to be absolute 100% truth? It's not what you read in media outlets. It's not what you find in the newspaper. It's, it's not even to be found in books of history because everybody has a bias uh, to some degree or another. We all fudge it. We all speak a few yards away from the truth a certain percentage of the time. The one place that you can look to for emet, for truth, is prophecy. 
because that is a message that comes directly from God to somebody who is a fitting antenna for that message. The problem of false prophets is that since their message is untrue, after people have heard it for a while from different people like that, they lose faith in the in the process of prophecy. Like they can't receive that anymore. They don't know who to believe anymore. So the people that are removed from Israel in the previous chapters are people like the false prophets. They're not innocent victims. And this is the smelting process that we've been referring to. Those who pass the test will be affirmed as God's people, and they will proclaim that he is their God. Now, commenting on the Mishnah, the Tifer Israel confirms that Isaiah's statement is a statement about the future, not about the present. This should not be surprising. After all, prophecy is nearly always about the future. Your people are all righteous and will inherit the land for all eternity is a snapshot of the Jewish people once they have done tshuva and have repented for their sins. At that point, it will be a community whose spiritual consciousness has been raised to such a high degree that they will naturally turn away from sin and false ideas and the element of the soul of the living God will be dusted off and shine through like a diamond. That is a holy people, and that's a perfect match for a holy land, and they will be there forever, implying the world to come. And there are some commentaries that regard that to mean also the resurrection of the dead, meaning we're talking about permanent residents, real permanent residents. Mm-hmm. But a quick note to members of other religions who might be listening to this podcast. They do not become Christians. They do not become Muslims in this endgame. They simply become what God wants the Jews to become, which is the people of Israel at their best. I can imagine that you're thinking now, that's a very nice lesson about the future of the Jewish people, but what does this have to do with Noahides? The answer is... Everything. Let's consider the words of the Rambam in the Mishnah Torah, Hilchot Milachim, chapter 8, halacha 11. Anyone who accepts upon himself the fulfillment of these seven mitzvot and is precise in their observance is considered one of the pious among the Gentiles and will merit a share in the world to come. Now true, the Mishnah in Sanhedrin began by stating that all of Israel has a share in the world to come, and then mentions a list of heretics who have no share in the world to come. But the Rambam is giving us new information. If he says that the pious among the Gentiles, or as we say in Hebrew, the Hasidei Umot HaOlam, have a share in the world to come, it must be that they have something in common with that segment of Israel that has a share in the world to come. And it must also be that they are not heretics, unlike those who do not have a share in the world to come. What we can understand from the Rambam statement is that both groups, Israel and the Hasidei Umot HaOlam, are people whose beliefs are in accordance with the principles of Jewish faith that can be distilled from both the written and oral Torah, revealed to Moses at Mount Sinai and handed down through the ages by the sages and scholars of the Jewish people. That's why it's important, whether you are Jewish or Noahide, 
to clarify exactly what those principles of faith are. We all want to be included in that category of people who have a share in the world to come. It may come as a surprise that the Torah puts such an emphasis on faith precepts. I think that many people compare religions and come to the conclusion that Christianity is about faith and dogma, whereas Judaism is supposedly about mitzvot, the practical application of commandments, or as people say, good deeds. I can't speak for Christianity, although I know that there are streams that believe that faith without acts is empty faith, while others hold of a concept of faith alone. But when it comes to the Torah, we have to get both categories right. That's why we have to begin with what Rambam said is the foundation of foundations, the belief in the existence of God, because it is the basis of the acceptance of the seven Noahide laws. It is not necessarily the basis for compliance with secular law. You can technically be a good citizen without believing in God. I say technically because you can support the idea of a social contract, that societies stand or fall apart depending on whether people act in responsible, humane ways. And that's a very important thing for our present day, because as we see, the social contract is completely being ripped apart in most of the countries that we live in now, and that we have come to rely upon as a, a, certain, a certain stability, certain philosophical stability. But you can refrain from littering and double parking without faith. But you still have to have some source for morality and ethics to keep your own selfishness in check. Along those lines, think of the prohibitions on theft and murder or the injunction to set up courts of justice with the three of the, of the Noahide laws. These are obvious steps to take to maintain a safe and functioning society. The prohibitions against idolatry and blasphemy presuppose that you believe in God. If that's true, then we can understand that conscious and active belief in God is a fulfillment of one of the Noahide laws. And at the same time, belief in God is like a framework that holds all of the seven Noahide laws. So let's look at the first of Rambam's 13 principles of faith. Rambam teaches us that we must believe that God exists and that He is the first cause. This means that all things that exist, the entire known universe, as well as all dimensions, physical and spiritual, are brought into being by this first cause. Imagine a house that has been built from scratch. The first cause of the house's existence is the architect who designed it and the builders who constructed it. Without them, the house wouldn't exist. In the same way, God is like the architect and builder of the universe, bringing everything into existence. Without God, there would be no universe. Just as without the architect and builders, there would be no house. The idea that God is the first cause of everything and that the existence of everything depends on God is often associated with what we call teleology. Basically, teleology is the study of the purpose or the design that we see present in nature. The idea suggests that there is a purpose or goal behind the existence of the universe and that this purpose or goal is driven by a higher power, such as God. The teleological argument is one of the classical arguments for the existence of God, 
And it suggests that the order and complexity of the universe point to the existence of a divine creator. Now, if you think about it, because this is an idea that is linked to ancient Greece. So if you had such an idea in that cultural context, you didn't necessarily have the idea that there was one single being that brought everything into existence. And even if you did, you would have a whole array of subordinate deities that you'd have to pay homage to, that you'd have to serve as well. All the forces of nature, all the diversity of nature seemed to ancient civilizations each to be ruled by a, a separate god. But it's interesting to see that this many thousands of years later, the Rambam is still making use of a teleological argument to explain Torah concepts. Right? The idea suggests that everything in the universe has a purpose and that purpose comes from God. The idea of God as the first cause goes beyond just the order of complexity of the universe to the very existence of everything. It suggests that God is not just responsible for the design and structure of the universe, but for its very being. According to this idea, if you were to remove God from the equation, nothing else would exist, for the existence of anything else depends on Him. This means that God is the ultimate cause and source of all that exists, including matter, energy, and life itself. Without God, there's no universe. No order, no complexity, no purpose. In this way, the concept of God as the first cause suggests that there is a transcendent reality beyond the physical universe and that this reality is the source of all that exists. The question is, what's the difference between the teleological statement made by the Rambam, who lived in the 12th century of the Common Era, and those that were made by Plato, who lived in the 5th century before the Common Era, or Aristotle and Augustine, who lived in the 4th century before the Common Era. Well, the earlier philosophers were stuck on the idea that it was the order and complexity or the beauty found in the natural world that points to the existence of an intelligent designer. It seemed obvious to them that a rational human being observing the world would come to an awareness of a creator from an appreciation of its complexity and order. It's like taking that feeling of inspiration that you get from seeing a beautiful sunset and then deciding that if something could be that beautiful, God must exist. The problem with this argument is that it makes the belief in an infinite being depend on the subjective reasoning of finite humans. One significant difference between Rambam's teleological argument and those of his philosophical predecessors is that the emphasis on the, is his emphasis on the limitation of human knowledge. Rambam believed that human beings are limited in their ability to understand the true nature of God and the universe, and that many of the apparent flaws or imperfections in the natural world are actually a part of a larger unknown plan or purpose, just as the seeming perfection, the splendor in nature is. So in simple terms, Rambam is saying that everything in, in the universe exists because of God's will and that God's existence is completely independent. If nothing else existed, God would still be complete and perfect, even if you didn't see that sunset. 
even if no one was around to appreciate the order, complexity, and beauty of the universe. Now, I want to make a point here that that's not to say that our ability to perceive and appreciate beauty and the emotional and spiritual experience that comes from it should not be incorporated into our spiritual lives because that's just part of who we are. And it does bring us to a greater appreciation of God. But what the Rambam seems to be hinting at, and this is something that we'll see in other sources as well. If you look at the first teaching in the Kutei Mohoran by Rabbi Nachman of Breslov, he says that a person has to make sure to connect themselves to the intelligence and wisdom that exists within every created thing in order to connect to God. Here's the difference between a Torah perspective and other perspectives. Because this idea of finding intelligent design in the beauty of the universe is rooted in the Hellenistic and and ancient Greek philosophies, we might safely say that this speaks to the verse in Genesis, which refers to the son of Noah, Japheth, or Japheth. It says there, Yaft Elohim liyafet, v'yishkon ba'ahole shame. That God gives beauty to Japheth, and he is able to dwell in the tents of shame. Now, the Jewish culture, the Torah, is linked to shame, which is one of Noah's other sons. That is the source of wisdom. The source of beauty is a, is a is a deep understanding that has been made available to the descendants of Japheth. So you'll see very often, most of the time, that most of the people of the world have a sense of the divine, of the transcendent, by looking at the beauty of things. The Torah distinguishes itself from other spiritual paths by making a demand that we connect to the wisdom that's inherent in things, the divine wisdom that's there. And even if the divine wisdom lays beyond our grasp because we are, of course, finite beings and we're glimpsing the wisdom of an infinite being, nevertheless, that is your pathway to God. So that's how we might distinguish Rambam from his philosophical predecessor. We said that God is completely independent. Whereas everything else from angels to planets to blades of grass, depends on God for their existence. God doesn't need anything or anyone else. So why did God create everything in the first place? Rambam tells us that God created us so that we could have a relationship with Him. The first commandment in the Jewish tradition of the Ten Commandments is, I am the Lord your God. And Rambam identifies this 
as the basis for our obligation to believe in God. While this Torah commandment is not strictly one of the seven Noahide laws, it follows logically from them. So according to Rambam, God created us to have a relationship with Him. And that's why we begin by believing in Him. In this episode, we learned about the concept of God as the first cause, which means that God is the ultimate cause and source of all that exists, including matter, energy, and life itself. The idea of God as the first cause goes beyond just the order and complexity of the universe to the very existence of everything. Rambam believed that human beings are limited in their ability to understand the true nature of God and the universe, and that what we perceive are part of a larger unknown plan or purpose. He emphasized the limitations of human knowledge and the importance of faith in understanding the relationship between God and the universe. According to Rambam, God created us to have a relationship with Him. And that's why we begin by believing in Him. Thanks for tuning in, and we hope you enjoyed this episode. Thank you for joining us on the Bear Sheva Podcast. The podcast is proudly presented to you by Sukkot Shalom Beni Noach. As a global Noahide community, Sukkot Shalom is deeply rooted in the timeless values of Torah. We're dedicated to nurturing growth, fostering unity, and spreading the light of Torah to every corner of the world. For more enriching content and to be a part of our vibrant community, visit our website at www.sukkatshalom-benenoach.com Remember to follow or subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast app and leave us a comment with the topics you'd love to explore in future episodes. See you next time.